Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in Buffalo, New York, U.S. of A. And with me as always... Is Lauren from Swansea. How are you, Brian? I'm good, Lauren. I noticed that uh, I always say good evening, but you know, what if someone's listening in the morning or the or the afternoon? Does that make me like outdated? It's usually, um, well, it's it's usually evening when we're recording, so I think that's where it comes from. Yeah, it could be that. It could be. But how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, although I think since you put your headphones in, you're getting, like, a delay, because every time I talk to you, it takes a second for you to answer. Does it? I'm so sorry. No, that's I'm, okay. I'm hearing you. I'm, I'm hearing you pretty, um, it could be because they're Bluetooth, but this, oh. they're connected. It could be. It could be Bluetooth. What a weird name, Bluetooth. It always reminds me of... Ah, the- yes. It's, it's, um... It's to do with a Viking called Bluetooth, and the reason he's called Bluetooth is because he liked blueberries, and the the symbol for Bluetooth is the rune, rune that symbolizes his name. In other words, he didn't brush his teeth. I don't know. He might he might have just stained his teeth with the amount of blueberries that he ate. I'm not entirely sure. It's a bit like if you drink enough Sunny Delight, you will turn orange. What? Didn't you ever know that, that if you drank enough Sunny Delight, that you will turn orange? I know that if you eat a fuck ton of carrots, your eyes turn orange. Yeah, it's the same principle. It's the same dye, but it's synthetic in Sunny Delight. And if you drink enough Sunny Delight, you will turn orange. Like Donald Trump? A bit more jaundice than Donald Trump. Oh, (laughs) so you're telling me I should not drink Sunny Delight? Yeah, you should. Well, today's Transatlantic History Ramblings is brought to you by Sunny Del... No, I'm just kidding. If they were a sponsor, they're not anymore. (laughs) I don't think they're sponsored by anybody. No, we should be sponsored by Duff's Wings, though. You should ask them, will they sponsor you? Have they listened to the podcast yet? Oh, they've listened. Yeah, absolutely. I should I should ask them for to be a sponsor because people from all over the world they want to come to Buffalo just to go to Duff's Wings. Yeah, and you could just say that your payment can be in things. I, that's all I want. <laughs> I don't want money for it's advertising. I want wing. wings. Yeah. Oh, so free Lauren, wing. I got something stuck in my craw. Oh, goodness. What now? Well, I was watching this thing, and it was talking about, like, the ten greatest movies ever made. Yeah. And I know that my list is not going to match theirs necessarily, and nobody's going to actually have the same ten great films, right? Because everybody's taste varies. But I understood what they were going for with, like, you know... These are ten landmark, important, great films that everyone should see, okay? Yeah. You follow me? I do. Okay. Now, some of them were obvious choices, like Citizen Kane was on the list. Totally agree. Okay, fine. Great. Wizard of Oz was on the list, the original. Um, not the original, but the, uh, the, 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 the big Hollywood Judy Garland production. Uh, you know, you, you're not going to disagree with that. They had Lawrence of Arabia on the list. 
I love Lawrence of Arabia. It's one of my favorite films, but it might not even be David Lean's greatest film. But a film was on that list that everybody I've ever met in my entire life has absolutely loved this film, and I never got it. Do you want to guess what film that is, Lauren? No. E.T. <laughs> um, I, um, yeah. E- I, I can't watch E.T. It's too sad. See, I just don't get it. I just don't get the hype of the film. I don't think mm-hmm. it's, yeah. And I don't want to say anything bad because, you know, I know everyone loves this film, but I just never got... The, the mass appeal and it's funny because I ask people what about that movie do they love and most people don't even remember details of the film they just remember loving it so I think it was kind of like this film that mass hypnotized people for a couple generations because no one really remembers the full plot here's what they remember uh, this thing called comes from outer space he eats some uh, some candy and then for some reason he's in drag in a closet and, uh, you know, then he wants to make a long-distance phone call. What else do you remember about the film? Um, isn't it like the FBI or somebody comes and gets him? See? You don't even know, right? Um, something about people chasing him? You don't remember. No one does. But I couldn't remember if it was the FBI that come and get him. I think it was Timothy Green Beckley. (laughs) Well, Timothy Green Beckley comes and gets him. He dies, turns white, and then they run away from a bunch of people, and then he goes home. Oh. Okay. Where does he go? Um, I don't know, but he does appear in Star Wars, so I guess he goes to a galaxy far, far away. Like... I, I don't get it. I do have some E.T. jokes, though, if you'd like. You love my jokes. I do. They're so pretty. Okay. Uh, what is E.T. short for? I don't know, Brian. He's short because he's got those tiny little legs. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say something rude, like E.T. is short for something... What, extraterrestrial? Extraterrestrial. Yeah, something like that. Why are E.T.'s eyes so big? Because they are. Because he saw his phone bill. (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) Okay. So, so, um, what should have taken E.T.'s place then on that list of films? You know, that's a good question. Um... I'll give you another example of uh, a problem I had with the list. Now, of course, like I said, this is just personal preference. They had Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush on the list. Mm-hmm. Wonderful film. But City Lights was a much better Chaplin film. So I think, you know, City Lights should have been on the list instead of Gold Rush. Um, I don't know. Um... Do you know, Empire Strikes Back was on the list, but not Star War- the original Star Wars A New Hope, which I like better. Uh, I don't know. I think Empire Strikes Back is, is amazing, and a superior film. Most people do. 
Um, but that's the the science fiction on the list was was um, Empire Strikes Back and uh, E.T. represented it. Unless you want to consider Wizard of Oz science fiction, which I guess it kind of is, even though it's you know fantasy. But you know there are other science fiction films that I think I might put above those films. Uh, for instance, you know Metropolis. Or, you know, even maybe something like Blade Runner, uh, which I think is a criminally underrated film, even though it's considered a classic. It is underrated. I do love Blade Runner. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, You know, Lawrence of Arabia was great to be on the list, but as much as I love that film, and I think, you know, it's beautiful and it's stunning, is 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 it better than Dr. Zhivago, or is it better... Um, than Bridge on the River Kwai? I don't know. It's very diff- It's very difficult because you never seem to know what they use to um, justify the list. You know, there's nothing there that tells you um, what qualifies them to be the position that they are. You're just told that it is. And I think that's the, that's the problem, is that everything is prescribed to you and you are told what is good and what isn't good, and that's very wrong. Agreed. Um, and, and like I said, I understand the basis of the list. If you would have called it films that change cinema. Um, because without doubt, Citizen Kane changed the way films were made. And, you know, other films on that list did change cinema. Yes. Um, I would... The only thing I would say is that if you're going to say they were the films that changed cinema, then you would have needed to have Star Wars. Um, a Over New Hope. Empire, absolutely. Yes, because that was the first. I mean, that wasn't so much of a. I think what people forget with the first film, it wasn't so much that it was um, what people sort of say was like one of the first blockbusters alongside Jaws. It was something that became a cultural movement, and there was something that that films like that didn't really have until star wars i mean you could say so i think star trek so i think star wars gave star trek the impetus to move into that sort of community into that sort of yeah in that star direction. trek had a cult following up till that point yeah but i think people sort of said oh, okay well you know uh, and and you've got to that it was okay to like films like that and be fanatical about them. Because if you think about it, the first Star Trek film came out after Star Wars. Yeah, and the first Star Trek film most people don't like. I happen to like it. Um, it's good, but I prefer Wrath of Khan. Well, Wrath of Khan is, of all the Star Trek films, the great one. Um, and, and, and I think it's I mean, because the first one, they decided they wanted to do a Star Trek film. And they wanted to do a Star Trek equivalent of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Something visually striking, something you're not going to forget the imagery. We're going to spend a shit ton of money and get a really great director. Um, You know, a well-known great director. Because Robert Wise directed the first Star Trek film. People forget that, that this Academy Award winning director made that film. And then it kind of bombed. And someone at the studio said, yeah, we shouldn't have done 2001, we should have done Star Wars. And then we get Wrath of Khan, 
which I think pretty much everyone agrees is the best Star Trek film. I mean, he was so badass they needed another film just to clean up after him. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. I never thought about it that way. I mean, yeah, that, that's that's the thing. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch's con was nothing. I mean, he was done and gone before the movie ended, but... I mean, the original Khan, you Ricardo needed a Ricardo Montalban, one. badass yeah, Khan. You, you, needed a, you needed a second movie just to clean up what he did in, in, in North of the Khan. I mean, if you think about it, um, The Search for Spock is just about cleaning up Khan's mess. I mean, it could have been it could have been called Star Trek, The Cleanup Crew. Yeah, and people forget how great Ricardo Montalban is in that film. People might want to laugh it off as this, you know, science fiction character. He was so good in that film because at the time, he was already a pop culture icon on one of the biggest hit television series going where he played a good guy. You know, he was Mr. Rourke on uh, on Fantasy Island. And he pops up in this film, reprising a role he did on the TV series years before, as this great villain. And he really was. He was a scary villain. Well, the thing is, as well... Um Oh, there's one scene at the beginning of Wrath of Khan where they put the worms in Chekhov's ear. That ew. That yeah. is ew. Um, but it's good, ew. Um, but, um, but what I think is that um, it kind of makes you question things as well, because if you were to take things on a deeper level, like in the original series, they do... Um, they the, On the Botany Bay, they are betrayed somewhat by Kirk. Yeah. And Kirk has created this villain, and that's the thing is he's like, it's it's sort of like Batman and the Joker. You know, Batman creates the Joker, and Joker creates Batman. This sort of intertwined, but with Kirk, it is he's created Khan. He's he's given Khan his anger and the reasons that he is angry about. So, you know, who is the actual villain? Well, Khan and, was also a criminal from the get go who tried to take over the Enterprise. Everyone forgets. Yeah, I know, but they were. Yeah, I <laughs> he mean, wasn't a good dude. I mean, he wasn't. But I think Kirk. I think the story that I would like everybody to take away from that situation is that Kirk could have dealt with it better in the first place. All right, I'll give you that. But now we're totally off the topic of this because list. If you just, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but no, what I'm saying as well is, is that, you know, if you were thinking about another captain, um, either Picard or Cisco, because I'm not quite sure Janeway, I think Janeway would have dealt with it in the same way that Kirk dealt with it, but they'd have just, they'd have just locked him up. No. Picard, like, I don't care. No, no first off, up. no, first off, Janeway, she'd have fell for him. I don't know. I think she would have, because her priority was ensuring that her crew got home i don't know if she would have if she would have sort of like i i don't think she i think she would have dealt with him the same way that kirk dealt no. with him especially if it was wrath of con con where he had like the big pectoral muscles the bare chest she'd have been all over that shit i i, I don't think so i just my take on it but uh... king Wilker, if you're listening please let us know Oh, Kate, if you're listening, we love you because, and not even from Janeway, because I was never a big fan of that show, no offense. Um, she's I was Mrs. A- Columbo. Exactly, she's Mrs. Columbo, so we love her. But back to this list. So, you know, what you, you asked me what I would have substituted E.T. for. If you wanted to go with another science fiction film, I would have gone 
uh, the original Planet of the Apes over it. I would have gone Blade Runner over it. Um, I would have gone... What about you know, the Cabinet? Or if I was going to replace it with a Spielberg film, I would have gone Jaws over it. But, beside the point, what would be on your list of the greatest movies? Um, Oh, goodness, now you're asking. Well, Citizen Kane, of course, would be on there. Yeah. um, Without a doubt. I love Citizen Kane. Um, Metropolis, uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um... I would say, oh, you've got to have a Hammer film on there, and I would say you'd have to have Dracula or Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm. What about a Kubrick film? Would you put a Stanley Kubrick film on that list? Um, I don't know. It's tough, because it's tough to name a director who was better than him. But would any of his films make that list? I mean, I think Full Metal Jacket is one of the great war films ever made. I could see that being on there. I, I think Clockwork Orange changed cinema. So I think I think if I was to go, I would be controversial and say it would have to be Clockwork Orange. Well, it definitely was the most British of his films, but it also um, it really was the cinema-changing film. It was cinema changing because it did open discourses about censorship in cinema and what people should be seeing and how people should be seeing it and and how certain events should be interpreted on screen. So I I would think Clockwork Orange. So I would say, but then I think if I was going to have a Dracula on the list, I would have um, Bela Lugosi. Well, Lugosi's Dracula, yeah. Yeah, so Bela Lugosi's Dracula, Hound of the Baskervilles from Hammer. Then I'd have a Gainsborough melodrama, The Wicked Lady. Have you ever seen The Wicked Lady? Oh, of Brilliant. course I have, yes. Um, I'd have The Wicked Lady in it because Margaret... Um, oh, I can't forget, remember her last name now. I keep wanting to say she's calling her... Uh, Margaret Lockwood is amazing. Um, as a highway woman. Now, we're both in agreement Wizard of Oz should be on that list. Absolutely, Wizard of Oz should be on the list as well. But, you know, suspiciously missing from that list was Gone with the Wind, which is a film that's been cancelled as of late. But it's funny, because forever it was always on those lists, but now it's mysteriously vanished from people's memory. I never liked it anyway, but... Um, I think it's important because, um, not necessarily because... Of the the, the, the the not not necessarily because of the film itself, but because of the things that happened after it. I mean, like you have Clark Gable campaigning for uh, for rights, you know, to have um, the to have all the actors treated the same. You know, Hattie McDaniel won an Oscar. Now, I I didn't make the full list. I should have written down all the films that were on there, but I made a list of a few films that I thought were suspiciously missing from this list. And I want to know if you agree with me or disagree with me, and I want to know what our listeners think. If you agree or disagree. And I'm not going to get all artsy-fartsy on you and name some films that really are that brilliant that none of you have ever heard of because I'm a film nerd. I'll avoid that. I'll just stick with the big popular ones that most people would be at least be familiar with that did not make the list that I think should have. I'm gonna, I have my list right here, Lauren. 
Agree or disagree with me and, and listeners write in or email us and let us know. Films that should have been on this list that were not. Casablanca. Yes. Okay. How it was left off, I don't know. But it was. Another film, not on the list, I think should have been. And again, even though I don't think it's this director's best film, it is a film that should have been on the list. Psycho. Yes. Oh, I, 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 what about Rebecca? I think Rebecca's a well, much better film, but again, we're talking about pop culture influence too, I guess. Psycho well, would be the big one. I don't one. know. I think, I, I, yeah, I agree if it, if that's what's qualifying the list, but I mean, Rebecca is such a big film for, um, for Hitchcock himself because it was the film that got him noticed by America. It was his first proper mainstream film. And it's beautiful. It's lovely. And Mrs. Danver, Mrs. Danvers creeps the hell out of me. <laughs> As she should. All right. Other films not on the list that I would make the argument should be on one of these all-time great lists. Rocky. Yes. Not the sequels. None of the sequels. Just the original, low-budget, gritty, realistic Rocky. The one where he loses in the end. You know? Game-changer, that film. Not on the list. Okay. So we're in agreement there. Yes. Okay, good. And you know, you could pipe in at any time if there's a film you think should be on a list. I'll tell you if it was there or not, but if you think really should be there is a culturally significant or important film like you like you said Caligari definitely yeah okay you mentioned it earlier Dracula Lugosi's Dracula not on the list should have been should have been I mean it was like I mean there were other versions of Dracula before that but I mean I I don't know though but would it would Nosferatu be a more culturally, culturally significant one? Because Florence uh, Stoker <laughs> had that one destroyed, or thought she did. It's a more historically I... significant one, but not a more culturally significant mm. one. Yeah, you're, you're right. It is more historically, but not culturally. Yeah, I'd say Dracula then, yeah. Okay. Lestrada. That might be a little too obscure for most people, Fellini's Lestrada. Sorry, I'm putting it out there. We don't even have to discuss that one personal opinion. Fine. On the waterfront. Yes, I agree. Yeah, not on the list. Should have been on the list. And one more that did not make the list that I think is criminal, because it should have made the list, the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, but the thing is, is, is how these lists, comprised who is making these lists why are they making these lists and that's what you've got to look at you but know? that's that, that, that's what's in my crawl this week okay I, th- I think that's i think that's our ramblings now i think we're gonna have to swiftly move on to today in history yeah because we we recorded an interview earlier this week lauren oh my god was it not fantastic it was really good 
it was fantastic. I really enjoyed listening yeah. to it. Folks, Lauren enjoyed this interview so much because I think this might be the first time she actually went onto our Facebook page a week in advance and said, oh my God, you guys are going to love this episode. <laughs> you are, you are going to love this episode. So before we get to that, <clears throat> we'll, we'll do our... Uh... All right. And I'm going to go first, Lauren. Okay. Okay. So today in history, which would be January 25th, 1924, was the inaugural Winter Olympics held in France. I I, I use that because, you know, the, uh, the Winter Olympics are about to start in a couple weeks, even in the COVID era, in the pandemic. We are going ahead and having the Winter Olympics. We had the um, Summer Olympics, so it'll be fine. Yes, but uh, the Winter Olympics premiered this day in history, 1924, in France. And uh, that leads me to a question, Lauren. Summer games or winter games, which do you prefer? Um, winter games. See, I'm more of a summer games fan. I'm not against the winter games. I love the hockey. Um, I love the bobsled. That shit's fun. I don't give a shit about figure skating, but it's like I don't really care about the gymnastics in the summer games. But the one that I love in the Winter Olympics that you don't hear much talk about usually is the biathlon. That's the one um, where you cross-country ski with a rifle on I your back. Know. Um, the, the only reason, uh, well, um, there used to be this game for the Sega Mega Drive called um, the Winter Olympics, and I had it, and the biathlon was my favorite. Mm. What a fucked up sport. You, you, you it is. Cross-country ski with a rifle on your back, then you stop and shoot targets every once in a while. I mean, I understand. It was a military uh, unit that would do, like, the ski patrols. So uh, that's the basis of it. But to turn that into a sport where, hey, I'm going to cross-country ski for a little bit, then, ooh, target shooting. It's just fucking weird. But I love it. And when it's on, I can't watch it. I'm like a fucking zombie. I'll sit there, mouth open, drooling on myself, watching this shit for an hour, going, I just literally watched target shooting, cross-country skiing for an hour. Love it. Love it. Anyway, Lauren, what's your, give me, hit me with your day in history. Okay, then. My day in history is um, from 1327. King Edward III accedes to the English throne age 14 after his mother Isabella of France and her lover Roger Mortimer deposed his father, Edward II. Yeah? Yeah. And what, what's he known for? Uh... Lots of things. Because <laughs> <laughs> that seems like, you know, I don't know that king. He didn't do too much shit, did he? No, not really, either. He, he did, did, you know. Did he lose the family jewels like the other guy did? Oh, Richard II. Mm-hmm. He lost them in the wash. Yeah. Yeah. So did he lose jewels um, or anything? No, 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 no. Did he? Uh, um, his... His mother was a bit was a piece of work, as was her lover Roger Mortimer, and he gets rid of them in the end. But um, he was, he was a he was a right king, you know. He did what a king should do. He didn't have fifty million wives or 
That was a funny one. You know, I'm, t- I'm glad you brought that up. What? I'm going to go into your personal life a little bit. We're going to break that barrier of uh, host to real person. Speaking of royalty and uh, yeah. good old Henry VIII. Yes. I understand you were trying to give our beloved Theo a history lesson. Oh, my God, yes. I and was. he has his um, own theory um, on Henry's wives. Yeah, he thought um, he was quite concerned that um, they were all married at the same time. Okay. And, I think uh, bigamy would have been the own. least of Henry's problems. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to look through my Facebook account to see what he actually says their names were. That was my favorite part, is that somehow <laughs> in his own mind he assigned names to the wives that were not even close. I know. Where did he funny. come up with these names? I don't know. And he's like, and I was like, oh, uh, he cut... And I was like, oh, he, he cut... Oh, yeah, I'm So he cut two of their heads off, and, and, and he goes, what the fuck? What the fuck <laughs> did he do that for? He, he really said, what the fuck? Yeah, he's like, why the fuck did he do that? <laughs> so, um, right. So according to Theo, the, the six sizes of Henry VIII were called... Oh, hang on a second. The, Let's do a little promo yeah. for this. According to Theo, 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 Theo. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, according to Theo, the six wives of Henry VIII were called Vanessa, Karen, Linda, Lydia, Heather, and India, in that order. I think <laughs> from now on we're going to have to have a small segment on our show called According to Theo, 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 Theo. Well, it was it wasn't as bad as when I showed my other nephew Dick Corey um, a Viking longboat, and he told me to fuck off. Well, your assignment, at least once a week, is to talk about some point in history with Theo and get his take on it, and we will reveal every week what history is according to Theo. What do you oh, think? Oh my god. I don't think you're ready for that. I don't, and I, I don't know if our audience is ready for our guest coming up along, but you're right. We should get to him. So let me give you yes. uh, the audience a little teaser here. Everyone who listens to the show knows that I'm a horror movie nerd. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, the significance, the cultural significance, the historical significance, and the importance of horror cinema. It's not just about gore and violence and blood and scares. There's so much more to it. And I'm never able to articulate that to the best of my ability. So I found someone who could. And Mr. Bruce Hollenbeck is coming on. One of the most respected names in the history of horror cinema. I mean, author, director, actor, producer, historian. He He's everything. And... Uh, we actually got him to sit down with us for quite a while, and we got one hell of an interview, Lauren. And uh, what do you think? I fire up the magic interview box and uh, bring that uh, <clears throat> interview to the people. I think we should. It's the magic interview box. All right. We're about to uh, flip the switch, 
And we'll be right back on the other side with the interview we did with the legendary Bruce Hallenbeck. Oh, Lauren, Lauren, are you ready for this? Because you know I'm going all fanboy again. I can't yeah, help myself. You've won me, baby. I know, <laughs> because we have got on tonight's show the amazing Bruce Hollenbeck, who I am such a fan of, not only as a screenwriter and a director and an actor, but as a historian and an author and an expert on all things spooky. And he has written, what is it, 15 books now? Uh, I think it's 13. 13? Close enough. Well, it's going to be 15, because <laughs> I know you've got a ton more about coming out, but yeah. he also does commentaries on some of my favorite movies of all time. He's written for every major publication that has anything to do with horror, including my new favorite, Rue Morgue. Love Rue Morgue. And, folks, if you even have the slightest interest in horror, or you think you know horror, you don't. Because this man right here puts me to shame, and everyone knows what a horror nerd I am. Mr. Bruce Hollenbeck, I am so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Now, let's get something straight right away. You're from the greatest state in the greatest country in the world. My beloved New York State, U.S. of A. Yep. But yet you know more about British folklore in horror than anybody I've ever heard of. How did you become such an Anglophile when it came to British horror? Well, I was kind of weaned on it. Um, I really didn't have any choice after I saw the first Hammer Dracula, Horror of Dracula, when I was five years old. That's when it came out, which really dates me. Um, and ever since then, I was hooked on, on British horror, really. Yeah, it's... There's something so different see i love american horror i love british horror i love german horror uh especially german silent horror i'm just an all-around you know horror nut as much to the dismay of everybody i know but well what's wrong with them you know i ask myself that question all the time really my brother is famous for saying brian's got the largest movie collection in the world that nobody wants to watch well, that's their loss, you know? Exactly. But there is something so different about the feel of British horror, especially of that era, the, the Hammer era and the emergence of it, yep. that no one ever hit on before or since. Even the Brits never came close to doing it again. Yeah. You might say Roger Corman kind of hit a little bit on it in America. Yep. Early on with his Edgar Allan Poe films, a little bit had that feel, but what do you think made those films just so special? I mean, there is a different feel, not just watching them, but there's a different feel to those films, and what do you think it is? Well, I think it's it's in their blood, so to speak. Um, when you think about it, you know, gothic horror really emanated from Britain in the first place back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, you know, you had people like Mary Shelley, 
and later on that century Bram Stoker, they basically created the whole Gothic horror mythos. So it's natural enough for, you know, the British to, to really run with that. Also, when Hammer started out in the 50s, they were based at Bray Studios, which was really just a, uh, a manor house in the country on the Thames. And uh, the atmosphere of those films owes a lot to the fact that it was, it was not a, a typical Hollywood-type studio. It was a manor house, and they just would redress the sets over and over again. Uh, they had a brilliant uh, set designer named Bernard Robinson, who was so terrific at that. Um, and I think that's what gave them their, their visual style. And, of course, uh, the actors were all from, you know, classical theater or, you know, had been classically trained in some way. And uh, that, that was Hammer. I mean, they were very British, and uh, you're right. They've never really been duplicated. A lot of people have tried. Um, even Hammer itself came back a few years ago under obviously new new management and they made movies like The Woman in Black and uh, they recently made a film called The Lodge but even those films don't seem like the old Hammer, the classic Hammer that we love Sorry, I, I think for me the one that was really um, like old Hammer but missed the mark was The Quiet Ones it, yeah, it, it could have been, uh, in a, yeah, it was a period piece, it was set in the 70s, so I guess technically, yeah, it's a period piece, but, um, yeah, I loved Jared Harris in that movie. Yeah, I did too. He, he, he would have made a great Van Helsing, or, or even Darren Frankenstein, I think, in the old days. Um, but yeah, the movie was not quite there. I mean, it was, it had a lot of good ideas, I don't think it necessarily all gelled. Uh, their most successful movie uh, in this century has been The Woman in Black, which was big enough to have a sequel. And that was the closest I think they came to The Old Hammer, because that was a real period piece that took place in the early 1900s, and very gothic. Um, and of course it had Daniel Radcliffe as a star, I think that was the main reason it was such a hit. But uh, it still wasn't quite The Old Hammer we, we know and love. No, but I gotta give, I gotta give Harry Potter credit for this because uh, Danny obviously loves the old Hammer thing. Because I don't think if it was for him that would have been made. I think he had a lot more to do with that than anything else, and I think he loves the tradition of it. Uh, but 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 who doesn't? And, and, and trust me, I know all about those Brits having the the. the get, laying claim to all things great Gothic literature because Lauren never lets me forget that. <laughs> that I'm just a silly American, and she is from the country of Bram Stoker. So, <laughs> yes, I could tell by her lovely accent, and and of course, whenever I go to England, they say that I'm the one with the accent. So there you go. Yeah, she tells <laughs> me that that I'm the one who talks funny, not her in Wales, but no, the Welsh talk funny. <laughs> The thing that inspired me to do this episode, other than the fact that I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, was there was a recent documentary that you took part in about the influence of traditional folklore in British horror cinema. Yep. And the the topic was just, you know, it fascinated me. When I saw that time, I'm like, what a great thing, because most horror is based on folklore 
But mm-hmm. in America, that was so different, you know, uh, especially post-1970 when so much of ours was based on urban legend more than folklore. True. Whereas in England, they really were able to do a genre, and, and it wasn't always horror. So much of their suspense and period pieces were folklore-based, and they still resonate all these years later. Oh, yeah. Uh, for, for instance, not that it's folklore so much, but a film like The Wicker Man, not the remake, which was absolutely atrociously bad. Yes, I agree. <clears throat> the Wicker Man is the kind of film, it's, you can't really call it a horror film. Mm. I mean, you can call it a detective film, a suspense film. Yeah. And if people don't know the plot, have never seen the remake or never seen the original, and I've done this, I've shown it to many people, I've said, hey, it's it's slow, but you'll like it. They are all so freaked out at the end, like I've never seen a reaction to any kind of horror film. Yeah. Why do you think America was never good at capitalizing on that? Or do you think an American audience just didn't really want or because we're too young a country to have that folklore history yeah I think um, well folk horror is really having a moment right now I mean it's it's very big right now at this time uh, there have been a lot of recent folk horror films that I thought were quite interesting um, I think as far as American horror goes uh, we have yet to really capture that kind of feeling although if you know if you if you watch the documentary which is called woodlands dark and days bewitched by the way um there is a, a pretty good sized section in it about american folk horror uh which is based quite a lot on uh, like southern gothic type tropes um there there was so much witchcraft and black magic and in the south uh, in the 1800s and, and beyond, um, we we never really tapped into that too much in, in American horror films. Most of American horror films actually based on the Gothic style. Uh, at least they were up until uh, I'd say around 1970 or so, when things started to change after Night of the Living Dead, uh, and then they became, as you said, kind of urban myths, you know, along the lines of. Candyman and movies like that. Um, we also never really explored uh, the uh, American, Native American myths very much in, in our horror films. There have been a few here and there, uh, but not, not to any great extent. And I think that's something that's yet to be explored, and I think it's starting to be explored a little bit. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see more stuff like that. But actually, I live in a town that is kind of um, basic as far as American folk horror goes. This is where The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was written uh, in Kinderhook, New York. So I, I grew up around this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I love that story. That's one of my favorite stories of all time by Washington Irving. Which was written in the early 1800s, same time as Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Um, So, you know, we've made a few films based on that story. And actually, strangely enough, I'm going to be in a movie 
that's being filmed in the Catskills this year called RIP, which is a modern-day version of Rip Van Winkle, which was also written by Washington Irving. So, you know, I think we're starting to, uh, to get into folklore more in, in the American tradition. And we should. I think the Native American thing, um, you know, I've always despised the way it was done in most American films. Like, I guess most prominently to, to more modern audiences would be the, the second Poltergeist film. You know, yeah. had all the... Um, but it's all about Indian burial grounds, which are kind of hooey yeah. to begin with. Right. But, you know, I'm from Native territory. I mean... You know, I grew up in the Tanawandas, and I'm right near Chitawaga and yeah. Seneca, and, you know, I'm on native land. And mm-hmm. it was never done properly. Um, I would love to see more historic horror uh, of New York of uh, or of Salem. They never really did any Salem films well. Um, they've done them. They just haven't been that good. <laughs> yeah, I think the closest one to that would would be a, actually a British film uh, called City of the Dead or Horror Hotel in this country you know, about a, a little town called Whitewood, Massachusetts that uh, is entirely inhabited by witches. I, I just, I love that movie. It's so atmospheric and uh, beautifully done. And that was an early Amicus film. That was actually before they were called Amicus. It was called a Vulcan production, but it was uh, Max J. Rosenberg, who was the Amicus guy. There's a couple so, wacky scenes in it, though. It, well, wacky, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, but I love that movie. I mean, it's just you know full of fog and mist, and Christopher Lee's in it, and you know it's great fun. Yeah, Christopher Lee is the professor at the beginning who sends her and her. Uh, he, he, it's a great film. Um, yeah. And he just had that voice. I mean, and I'll, you know, this might be sacrilege, and, and you might hang up on me after this, but, you know, to me, Lugosi is still Dracula. Uh-huh. But it's hard to say there was anybody cooler in films than Christopher Lee. Yeah, he was pretty cool. <laughs> Although I, I will say that my favorite actor of all time is probably Peter Cushing. Um, I, uh, I actually corresponded with him from when I was 14 years old up until just before he passed away. And uh, he was always my hero. I mean, he was uh, a very versatile actor, I think a little more versatile than Lee was. Uh, like, if you've ever seen him in 1984, the British yes. production, 50s, he's terrific in that. He's devastating in that. And, uh, you know, he, he was just uh, so great at playing everything from Sherlock Holmes to Baron Frankenstein that I think he had a lot of range. And he so could pull off comedy. Favorite. I mean, he's yeah. hilarious in movies like Top Secret, even though it's a oh, yeah. small little role. Um, yep. He was great. Now, you are such a hammer freak. I mean, I think four of your books are about hammer horror? Um, you know, I'd have to think about it's that. It's either four well, or actually, five. It will, be, it will be four after this summer, because I did the... Uh, the Hammer Vampire, The Hammer Frankenstein, Hammer Fantasy and Sci-Fi, and this summer will uh, uh, the Hammer Thriller will be coming out. So, yeah, that's four. <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot right now before we go into more deep-depth conversation. 
favorite Hammer film. You gotta pick one. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yep, that's it. Oh. You gotta do it. One. That's, a, that's like saying, "What's my favorite child?" Um, my mother says me. <laughs> that's good. Um, I would say, I would say you know. I was lying to you, Brian. <laughs> Okay, um, I would say my my favorite Gothic Hammer film because they did other things too, but my favorite Gothic horror Hammer film would be The Brides of Dracula. Uh, it just seemed like everything was so visually perfect in that film, and the acting was great. Um, the atmosphere is second to none, and the the set design once again by Brennan Robinson is just absolutely terrific. I mean it's. It looks like a multi-million-dollar production, and it was made for less than a million. So, you know, and, and I'm one if of those weirdos. If I was going inter- to introduce, introduce somebody to Hammer, I would show them the Brides of Dracula. I think. See, it depends on who I want to introduce to Hammer, because some people I might show them, you know, um, vampire lovers, because um, that yeah. would definitely pique their interest. Especially if they're teenage boys. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, it, it's funny. Because one of my favorites... Oh, and here comes Cleocatra to disturb the show. Hello, Cleo. Uh-huh. Um, so you're a cat person too, huh? Oh, yeah. One of my yeah. favorite um, of the Hammer Horror films is one of the last ones, and that was Frankenstein Monster from Hell. Oh, yeah. Which I love with David Prowse as the monster. Mm-hmm. And you got, uh, you got Tarkin and Vader together before <laughs> Star Wars. Right. Um, it's a very underrated Hammer film, and it's usually not even in the collections they put out. And that bothers me a little bit. But great film, people. Go back and check that one out. It, yeah, it's a really good swan song to the series, I think. Because uh, it kind of sums up a lot of the themes of of the whole series. And, and Cushing is so great in it. And, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, he just kind of says, oh, well, you know. They tore the monster to bits, but we'll just start over again and build another one, you know. Yeah. Well, it was kind of like, um, and I don't even know what title you prefer using, but it's probably most famously known in America as the Satanic Rites of Dracula. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is, I think, released under four or five different titles. Well, it was Count Dracula and his Vampire Bride when it was released here a few years after it was made. Um that's those are the only titles I can think of off the top of my head, but um, yeah, I think that's a rather underrated film too in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it's got that weird you, you finally feel bad for Dracula in that film, and and it's his it is most evil. He's not just there to like fuck with people. He's there to destroy the planet in that movie. Yeah, yeah. and you find out it's because he wants to die. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know that. That would have been really interesting if they had explored that a little bit more, you know, if they had kind of fleshed that whole idea out about him really having a death wish. And the only um, way to do it is to destroy the world. Yeah. I mean, it's like a Fu Manchu plot, almost. Yeah. Oh, and Freddie Jones is so good in that movie. <laughs> yes, well, well, Freddie Jones was great in everything. He he was really great in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, which uh, is one of my favorites in that series. Um, um, kind of the bleakest Frankenstein film. No. I mean, everybody, I mean, everybody does. Yeah. But, he's, no, really a but he's really a good person. Except, except maybe for, for Freddie Jones, Jones, and he's a monster. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, you know, Freddie Jones, another versatile actor who, um, of the, the, of the Hammer ilk, that, that always, you know, he seems not to be talked about as much when people refer to Hammer. And just another dynamite actor that seems to have fallen through the cracks. Well, I think he's, he's known more as a mainstream kind of actor. I mean, he was uh, terrific in The Elephant Man, for example. Very uh, against character, too, in that movie. Right. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, in England, I mean, uh, he was known as uh, a very a consummate stage actor, and he did a lot of television. So he, he's pretty well known over there. Yeah, see, Lauren always likes to point out that the Hammer films are so much better than the American films that I tend to watch, but... Oh, oh no, I, I mean, come on, there are some pretty bad Hammer films out there. I'm here on the buses, that's just hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have to agree with that, yeah. I mean, it, it was... They, they kind of had to, by that point, make on the buses. Obviously, they are forgiven, but it, it, they are horrible films. They're not even that funny. But you know what? I, I'm such a hammer freak, as Brian says, uh, that uh, I, I can't really hate any of the hammer films. I mean, just the fact that they're a hammer film. When I was a kid, and I was growing up at just the right time for this, um, whenever I saw there was a hammer film coming out, because the, they would always have the name in the, in the ads, you know, a hammer film production. I had to see it, regardless of what it was about. I mean, it could have been a war movie, it could have been a, uh, you know, a swashbuckler, they did quite a few of those. Uh, it could have been science fiction, I had to see it. And uh, just just the fact that it was Hammer, I still can't hate any of them. And I'm glad you said that, because I always love to tell people that Hammer is not just Dracula and Frankenstein movies. Hammer was far more than just their gothic horror films. Um, some of the great science fiction films of the early 60s were Hammer films. Yeah, actually, the, the Quatermass films are among my favorites. Amazing! Yeah. All of them, really. Uh, I think my all-time favorite is Quatermass in the Pit. Um, but uh, another one of my favorites is The Abominable Snowman, another Nigel Neal script. Um terrific movie and the, by far the best movie ever made about the yeti um and also what you never saw harry and the hendersons <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry had to do it just, just not as cerebral Mm-mm. but uh they also made a movie called in this country it was called these are the damned in england it was called the damned uh back in the early 60s and joseph losey directed it a really fascinating movie with oliver reed um, kind of playing a it's almost a precursor to a clockwork orange because it's partly it's partly a punk kind of movie and partly a science fiction film and just have you ever seen it? Brian? Yes I have Do you like it? I love it but I'll watch, I would watch Oliver Reed uh, stand up against a wall that was just painted watching it dry I mean yes. it's, you know it's Oliver Reed <laughs> And he would still be intense, regardless of what it was. You know, it's funny. You talk about being uh, keeping in correspondence <laughs> with Peter Cushing. I've said this on the show before, but one of my heroes in film that I became obsessed with as a teenager and started a correspondence with up until his death was the filmmaker Ken Russell. Oh, really? And, you know, we used to write 
this was long before the days of email people, so we would actually handwrite letters and send them to and fro. And he would tell me Oliver Reed stories every once in a while in these letters, because him and Oliver were best friends. Yeah. And he said, you know, people complain about directing Oliver Reed that he's difficult to direct. That's not true. Oliver is easy to direct. Oliver has two faces, angry one and angry two. And before each take, I would say, Oliver, give me face one. Oliver, give me face two. That's how you direct Oliver Reed. <laughs> well, you and I must be uh, soul brothers or something, because uh, I'm also a huge Ken Russell fan. Uh, and uh, I, I envy you, you know, knowing him in that, in that respect. Uh, I, I love all of his movies for various reasons. And, Even his... Uh, tail end of his life films which let's yeah. be fair you know the last few films he made he made with a handheld camcorder yeah. for no money and there's yeah. something visually worthwhile in those oh yeah he might well, have like destroyed his own months. career by making listomania yeah yeah <laughs> oh you're gonna give me an unlimited I... budget and tell me i can do whatever i want okay here you go yeah and I, I love Listomania. I do, too. It's probably my favorite of his films, because that's the film that proves there are no boundaries. That's right. And also, it's funny, because he does kind of borrow a little bit from Hammer Horror in that, too. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, he's got uh, uh, Wagner being a vampire and, you know, fighting Franz Liszt and forcing him to write the kind of music he wanted. Uh, and being yeah, reincarnated as a Frankenstein monster Hitler, <laughs> who storms right. through the street of Germany killing Jews with an electric guitar machine gun. Yes, people, this yep. really is in this film. <laughs> this is why Ken Russell's career was destroyed. It Pretty much, yeah. I, I remember seeing that in a theater in New York uh, in 1975, and I think my friend and I were the only two people in the audience. Um, well, except for the rat. There was a rat in the theater. Um, but... Uh, a couple of years later, I went to a screening of it at uh, SUNY in Albany, the, the college in Albany, and uh, people were just yelling at the screen saying, this movie stinks, you know, and this kind of stuff. Well, they just don't get it, do they? It's one of the few movies I actually, my, my entire apartment, as you can see in this background, is covered with pictures and, and photographs. Every wall of every room in my apartment is this way. Um, but there are very few movie posters, but one of the only movie posters I have hanging up is the original one sheet of Listomania, uh, which was yeah. sent to me by Ken Russell, along with the press kit, when he said, so well, at least somebody liked it. You have an autograph poster from Ken Russell? He did not sign it. Oh. Yeah, and it was a pretty beat up one, all folded and torn. <laughs> but I'd written him a letter about Listomania, and he sent me back the press kit, and that poster that was in pretty rough shape. Uh, and he's in, in the letter he said, well, at least somebody liked it. <laughs> so, yeah. It, yeah, that pretty, pretty much did uh, destroy his career, I suppose. Although, you know, I really liked Gothic and uh, the films that he did with Vestron. Layer of the White Worm. Yeah, Layer of the White Worm. That was very much like a, a Hammer horror yes, film. Yes, very. I was going to bring that up later, that he might have been the also only one. There were only two films of that time period that I thought had even close to the feel of a Hammer Horror film, and one was Ken Russell's Lair of the White Worm, 
and the other was Serpent in the Rainbow. Hmm. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Also uh, somewhat folklore-based. True. Yeah. Well, Lair of the White Worm is, is folklore uh, to a great extent, because Bram Stoker wrote the novel, based it on uh, the Lampton Worm, which was, you know, a real medieval folktale. Um, kind of like the uh, Loch Ness Monster, in a sense. Um, so yeah, and it's it, it all it all comes back to folk horror. I think really everything comes from that. When did you get right down to it? Did you just say the Loch Ness Monsters folklore? Well, no, because you know I, I don't. Think <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but young Earth creationists claim that the Loch Ness Monster is evidence that there is no evolution. Who, who claims young it? Earth creationists? Do they? Yes. Okay. In their well, textbooks, they say the Loch Ness Monster's existence proves God created everything. I don't know how. I I couldn't tell you. And I didn't know the Loch Ness Monster was real. Well, actually, uh, I'm a, a part-time cryptozoologist mm-hmm. as well. I've written several books on, on that topic. Um, I don't know if it's real either, but it's really interesting. And uh, something that I like to research you see i like mothman mothman fascinates me we did a couple shows on mothman bigfoot who's not fascinated by bigfoot nessie that one i think we would have found we had enough sonar in boats that scraped the entire floor of the of the of the loch ness so you know you'd think so but i don't know i I still have an open mind and uh, lake champlain has its own monster yes so does lake erie yeah yep which I've investigated, and uh, I don't know. I'm I'm open to suggestion there. I uh, I see in your background there might be a monster in that pool. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure where that came from, but uh, that is. <laughs> I, see, another thing. I told you when I first emailed you when we were talking that uh, I warn you we're going to become fast friends. <laughs> yes. And I, I, you are one of the few horror experts, fans because um, you're both I mean, there, and there's a difference between a fan and an expert I've met experts who are not fans and they are snobbish but they, you know I took master courses in this well, fuck you you're a fan and an expert I don't consider myself an expert I consider myself a fan but you don't you're not snobbish about it, you seem to like all the genres of horror you're not like oh anything that came out in the 80s as a slasher film is just worthless drivel no you're like you know they all serve their purpose i like this more than this but horror is horror and the proof of that is you're making horror films to this day well yes that's true um actually um i've direct written and directed a few very low budget films um, the first one I did uh, was actually a remake of Carl Dreyer's Vampire. How's that for strange? Um, and you know what? Was, I'm going to cut yeah. you up before you say it, something because you have got monster cojones to remake <laughs> that film because of all the early sound or late silent horror films. <clears throat> that one is the most atmospheric. Mm-hmm. I, f- 
I don't think it's as good a film as Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but it's more atmospheric than the film that people say is the most atmospheric. I think it's more atmospheric than Nosferatu or any of the big ones. There's something about Vampire that is just so... A friend of mine said, I don't like horror films, I don't care about vampire films, but I couldn't take my eyes off of this movie. There's something about it, the way the cameras move. And to remake that, just (laughs) massive applause. Well, I mean, I don't don't know if we did it justice, but um, yeah, we did have a lot of qualities. But the reason we did that was because I had just hooked up with a... My partner was... uh, the cameraman and he had a 16 millimeter Aeroflex and we thought okay we're going to shoot this film but we're not sure if we can shoot sync sound or not uh, so I thought well what can we do that's not reliant so much on sound and I thought of Vampire which just because of its pure atmosphere uh, is almost entirely visual as it turned out we could do sync sound and we did but, um, you know, we were fairly faithful, I think, to Dreyer's original, and uh, we had a, a restored 19th century village that we were able to shoot in uh, that was owned by this millionaire guy, and he let us uh, romp through the village and to our heart's content and uh, film it, and uh, I think it turned out okay. It's, it was on Amazon Prime up until just recently, I think. Um, it's, it's nice to know that it's still around after... 30 years or more. Well, I loved it, and I would have been its harshest critic if it didn't live up to it. Oh. And I enjoyed it, and I remember telling people, wow, someone remade Vampire, and it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I, uh, You know, uh, it hasn't had a lot of PR. I mean, it was well-reviewed in a book called The Vampire Film by Elaine Silver. Um other than that, Save I don't it think again because I don't have book. that book, and I just found one to add to my collection. <laughs> oh, okay, it's a very good book. Elaine Silver, uh, A L A I N, uh, Frenchman. And I think it was a co-author, but I can't remember who that was. All right, well, uh, it's written down now, so great. <laughs> you so, also uh, did um, London After Midnight. <laughs> yeah. Now there's there's cojones for you. Yeah. Uh, I just like the title, and the title in our version is kind of a play on words, because the the main character's name is London. <laughs> and actually, what it is, it has nothing to do with the Cheney film, whatsoever. It's just a uh, sort of a cross between the X Files and the uh, the original Avengers with you know Patrick McDee and Diana Rigg kind of thing. Do you ever see that one? Because that hasn't been released really. No, no, I've I, I've seen it. Um, again, when I was trying to pull up some information before bringing you in, I'm like, he did London After Midnight? No one's even seen the Cheney version since it came out. <laughs> well, not too many people have seen my version either, but that's okay. One of these days. But uh, as far as the, the film that I uh, really want to be seen, there's a movie that we made back in 1994, believe it or not, that stars Veronica Carlson of Hammer fame, and uh, B-movie queen Debbie Rashawn, which was called Black Easter. And the producer, for whatever reason, uh, held on to the footage for years and years and years, and I I couldn't get it. I mean, I couldn't get him to do anything with it. He was supposed to have edited it. 
and he never, he just dropped the ball. Uh, well, a couple of years later, I'm sorry to say, he passed away, but his uh, widow made sure that I got the, the original footage, the original camera footage, and we are now assembling that, and uh, we hope to have it out by the end of the year. There are actually a couple of distributors interested in it. Um, probably, you know, Veronica has a lot to do with that. So, I, I think it's finally going to be seen after all this time. I mean, 28 years is a long time to wait, but there it is. Yeah, you, no, you never give up. I don't want to drop name. Full Moon Features, I'm sure, is one of the people who would be interested. People like that. I know you can't name any names right now, but... Now, Not is really. this a 16 millimeter printer, a 35 millimeter printer? Did you shoot it on, um, you know, uh, Betacam uh, in '94? What would you shoot on? We shot on Betacam. It was the first time that we. It was kind of an experiment for us. Um, that was cutting edge in '94. I'm sorry. That was cutting edge technology in '94. <laughs> it was actually. Yeah. And we were really careful with the lighting and the audio and everything else. You know, we made it as absolutely professional as we could. And I think it turned out really well. It's it's a uh, an Amicus-style anthology movie with five stories. And uh, Debbie Rashawn plays a, a hitchhiking ghost in one story. Veronica Carlson plays a psychiatrist who is working with a man who has an irrational fear of the dark in another story. Um... I think it really turned out well, and and if you can picture this, uh, I'm I'm the character that ties it all together. I play a demented Easter Bunny who tells all the stories. I think that's wonderful. And I, and I have a different Easter egg for each story, so there you go. I think that is absolutely fantastic. And if you ever want to do one with a demented like tooth fairy or something, you know, call me or something because that would just be a ridiculous look. Okay, but, um, I'll do that. Or voiceover. I, I'm much better. I'm much better sounding than I am looking. So, hey, I wouldn't uh, say that. Now, obviously, you're a hammer film nut, and I don't want to keep calling you a freak and a nut, and not let people know these are terms of affection to people like us. <laughs> That's right. Don't write in and say you keep insulting. <laughs> but outside of the gothic horror of Hammer. What is your favorite genre of horror films? Let's say your favorite American genre of horror films. Well, it would either be the you know the classic Universal ones of the '30s and '40s, uh, or the Roger Corman uh, Poe movies. Um, either one is, I, I love them all. I mean, I always say that um, you know, Hammer is in my soul, but uh, the Universal ones are kind of in my heart. You know, they're they were my first uh, horror films that I was ever exposed to. Same here. Even, even before Horror of Dracula. And, uh, you know, you, you got to love them. I mean, they started the whole ball rolling. And then the Corman films in the 60s were the really the American equivalent to Hammer. And the, and the color and the, uh, the atmosphere, the acting, all of that. So I, I love both those, those kinds of films. Yeah, the Universal Horror Films... Um were my earliest exposure and it's funny when I've met people later in my life um, you know post college years things like the older I got and I would meet people and I would show them these films if they watched them when they were young they loved them if they 
never been exposed or saw them, and I would try showing it to them, they were just bored stiff. And I always believed that was because there's something about, with the exception of Dracula, that's the only one that's the exception here. If you're talking about the big universal films, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, any of those, as a child watching those films, there's something that instinctively you identify with with the monster. Mm. And it becomes sympathetic to you. They're outsiders, they're scared, they're confused. And it stays with you. You can see, like, at Halloween... You know, the classic Karloff image of Frankenstein is the stereotype of Frankenstein now in Halloween stores. And you can see the look on someone's face who you could tell grew up on those films when they see it and that nostalgia washes over them. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. See, horror is not just horror, people. It means something. (laughs) That's true. I mean, you know, the Frankenstein monster as played by Karloff is just a very sad, tragic creature. And, you know, the kids pick up on that. When they, I remember when I first saw Frankenstein, I was a little bit scared when Karloff first appeared. But I remember by the end of the movie, I just I felt really sad for, for what happened to him. Just as I did with King Kong, of course. And, uh, you know, the son of Kong, <laughs> that, that actually was the movie that inspired me to make movies because... Uh, when I was 12 or 13, I got my first movie camera. And after seeing Son of Kong, you know, I cried my eyes out when, when the Son of Kong died. So the first movie I ever made was an animated movie called Kaiko, Son of Kong, in which he came back to life. So I had to revive him. I just had to do it. Not with voodoo or anything bad that was going to make him no, evil Kong, no. I hope. No, he just crawled out of the ocean, and he was fine. Oh, okay, that's cool. <laughs> I uh, What about, as horror progressed in both the UK and America, where they started really pushing the envelope as far as shock value and titillation went? Yeah. Do you think it, it lost its meaning? Or, for lack of a better word, lost its soul? I don't think so. In some ways, I think it, it gained more of a soul. Uh, I remember the first time I saw Witchfinder General under the title of Hunt for Worm. And I was kind of expecting another Poe movie. But, wow, it blew me away. Um, and I thought, they really went far, but it, but not too far for me. I mean, I, I just thoroughly was thrilled by it. And then, and then uh, a couple, couple months later, later I saw Night of the Living Dead, and I was really shocked. And I wasn't 100% sure I liked him. I mean, I thought it, I thought it was well made, but I thought it went a little bit too far. Maybe. Well, it changed the game. It sure did. Um, but then, you know, the more I thought about it, the more it haunted me. And I saw it again and again, and I came to realize what a great watershed movie that was. Um and, and then, then in the 70s, 70s, you know, you've got, got the early 70s, 70s you've got all the British films like Blood on Satan's Claw, The Wicker Man. Um, they, they couldn't have been done a decade earlier. They, they just wouldn't have been allowed by the censors. So, so I think actually the relaxation of censorship just added more to what horror films could do. So I have no problem with that whatsoever. And in America, 
America, you know, it went even farther. Um, with yeah. which I love films like Maniac, and um, you know, it it got to the point of being pure exploitation cinema. To the yeah, point where yeah. that's the only place it would play were exploitation houses and drive-ins. Right. Which right. kind of made it its own little cult that we all still feel a part of, I think. Probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, horror and horror became more and more kind of down market, I suppose you could say. Um, you know, they played the grind houses and they played some of the same theaters where they played porn. You know? So, um... Yeah, yeah, it, it became, became a whole different ball game, game ultimately. And there, and there were some good films and some not so good films, but I don't think they were bad just because they were horror films. They were just bad because they weren't well made. Some of them. Or some of them were just... What? <laughs> and I've seen yeah. plenty of those. But then yeah. you got the boom of the late 70s into the 80s slasher market. Um, which I also is a genre that I love, and and it's one of those things I kind of hate to admit that I love them so much, but they're a guilty pleasure. Yeah, well, well, you know, I always say I, always say I, I never feel guilty about liking what I like, what I like. Uh, so, I don't, so I don't really have any guilty pleasures as such. <laughs> I mean, I love uh, Jim Lenorski is a friend of mine, and I love his movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, his his version of uh, Not of This Earth, I think, is terrific. It's, it's like, like it's, it's the naked, naked version of the original. It's almost shot for shot the same, except there's nudity. <laughs> and uh, you know, I like uh, his version of the Haunting of Morella. I think it's uh, it's a pretty good uh, homage to the early '70s or late '60s movies. So now, do you think I, the horror's really hitting another um, golden age? I believe that. I, I really believe. Um, independent filmmaking um, I don't like to call it low budget filmmaking because usually independent films are truly no budget filmmaking but the access of that um, of so many young up and coming filmmakers that can make a film now with their cell phones and a laptop and so many of them interested in the horror genre that you know now you're seeing streaming channels dedicated just to horror films yeah. And, you know, whole companies that are just distributing horror films or grindhouse films that, you know, we're entering another age of uh, maybe uh, maybe not another golden age, but at least another um, cubic zirconia age <laughs> of, of horror. Yeah. I think we're past the torture porn. Um, aspect of it, which was big about five, ten years ago. Yeah. You know, then we got into the remake era where they wanted to remake the big films. Halloween was remade. Texas Chainsaw was remade. It was remade, you know. Yeah. Yeah. With all these young creative filmmakers coming out with a lot of original stuff, we're past the zombie phenomenon again, I think. I think so, yeah. Do you think these people will start reaching back into history and folklore and bringing that into modern film? Well, I, yeah, and yeah, I, I, I think uh, uh, you know, folk horror is, is really hot, hot right now. I don't know how long that that boom uh, is going to last, but there have been a number of uh, folk horror films uh, of recent years that 
that piqued my interest. And there have been elements of folk horror and, and other things. Uh, like, for example, um, the, uh, the miniseries that was based on uh, Jerusalem's Lot. What was the name of that again? I forget. Um, it was, I thought it was quite good. And uh, what I'm watching now is really interesting. It's um, the Netflix uh, miniseries called Archive 81. Have you seen any of that? I have not, but I've been told to watch it. Well, it's really creepy. Um, creepy and intriguing and weird. And I think that's that's the direction horror films are going in. Not so much gore anymore, but weirdness. Just, you know, getting weirder and weirder. Which I'm, I'm all in favor of. I, mean, I love the weird. Yeah, yeah, and it's getting respectable um, again. Well, I don't know if it was ever truly respectable, but it's becoming respectable. You look at series like American Horror Story, or, you know, a film like Get Out, winning the Academy Award, which, hey, for a first-time director, Jordan Peele, I thought, made a great atmospheric film. Um, As a horror movie nut, I was less impressed with it than most people. Yeah. I liked it more as a suspense film. I didn't like they kept calling it a horror film because it's not. Right. <laughs> Sorry, Jordan. Love you. Great movie. It's not a horror <laughs> film. Yeah. But the fact that it was labeled as such, it's giving horror credibility and respect. Yeah. Now, folks like you <laughs> have been trying to get horror to have that respect for years. How do you feel now that it is? Do you feel now like hmm, maybe I don't want them playing in my sandbox. Or are you happy to welcome them to the sandbox? I don't know. I guess I have slightly mixed feelings because if horror gets too respectable, is it still horrifying? I don't know. Um, But, yeah, I I know what you mean. I think, well, you know, I think the fact that the world has become more horrible in the last couple of decades uh, has probably added to the respectability of horror films because... By comparison, horror films are an escape from reality. I mean, uh, I know that uh, if I hadn't had a certain uh, number of horror films to watch during the, the shutdown last year, was it last year or the year before now, I guess, uh, I would have been lost. I mean, you know, escaping into, into fantasy horror for me has always been, um, you know, the same as science fiction for a lot of people. I mean... I don't believe in werewolves or vampires, but I sure love to see them on the screen. And, uh, you know, just escaping into that world, whether it's a gothic world or a folk horror world or whatever, is is uh, a real release for me and for millions of other people, I'm sure. I just came up with a weird idea. And I don't know if anybody's going to like this, but you and me might be the only two people in the world who want to do this. Let's play a little game right now. We'll each come up with a film that is called a horror film, and everybody recognizes it as a horror film, but we insist that it's truly not a horror film. Yeah. Like, Get Out, we already just used, but... uh, Right off the bat, no pun intended, uh, I would say The Silence of the Lambs is not really a horror film. Um, It's it's a suspense movie, more than anything. But, But everybody calls it a horror film. Yeah, great answer. Mine, The Exorcist. Not a horror film. It's actually the film about one man. It's about Damien Karras. It's not about the devil or the little girl. It's about the priest's struggle with his own faith. Well, that's true. Although I think 
that doesn't preclude it being a horror film. Not a horror uh, film. I mean, I, I, sorry, I'd just like to point out she's not possessed by the devil. She's Pazuzu. Pazuzu, who is an Egyptian um, god of mischief. So, you know, you lose uh, 50 geek points for that. Brian. Well, it is Pazuzu. I call my cat Pazuzu because of that movie, <laughs> even though her name's Cleopatra. He, he, nah, he, he's not a devil. He's the Greek god. Oh, no, he's the Egyptian god of um, mischief. And Lauren yells at me for referring to Cleo as Pazuzu when she acts up. She, she's not possessed. <laughs> but yeah, good okay. answer. Silence of the Lambs, another perfect example. Um, another film that got respectability at the time, winning all the Academy Awards pretty much. Yeah. Didn't last as a horror being a respected genre. No. Do you think and this just popped into my head when you said that, it was the fact that it was a non-horror film director that made that, that gave it its credibility, sort of like with Get Out, Jordan Peele was known as a comedian. Yeah, I mean, a non-horror director also, you know, starring Anthony Hopkins and all of that. Um, yeah, it didn't, see, it didn't seem like a horror film to me. Um I don't know, maybe if John Carpenter directed it, it would seem it would have seemed more like a horror film. I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, because if Wes Craven had made the same film, mm. would people have given it the respectability that it got? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure they would. And, you know, say what you want, a guy like Carpenter or Craven are very capable filmmakers. Granted, not all horror filmmakers were very were great filmmakers. People right. like Craven and Carpenter of the modern era were very good filmmakers, craftsmen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I've been a fan of Carpenter's ever since uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which, uh, to me, is still one of his best movies. Yeah, and I am um, with, with Craven from Last House on the Left, even though it's a very difficult film to watch. Mm, I, I have a hard time with it. Yeah, it's a but, very yeah. difficult film to watch. Not because it's... It, it, and it's horror, but not in a what most people would think of as a horror yeah. setting. I it's most, disturbing. Yeah, I think most people think of horror as having something to do with the supernatural. Um, and I will admit that's my favorite kind of horror film. But there are other kinds. Yes. And the remakes of Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave and films like that, which you know were being remade for the shock value. Yeah. When I don't think the originals were. Well, I think Last House on the Left was made for shock value to a large extent, but it was also kind of a uh, a message on, on what we were going through at the time as a country. You know, and I Spit on Your Grave, the most controversial film of all time, was meant to be a statement about horrible things going on in the world. Yeah, The remake was just about, we're going to shock you. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of a wimp when it comes to some of the real brutal horror films because, as I say, I like to escape into a horror film. And I remember the first time I saw Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah, I wanted to escape from that movie. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's a film with, what, three graphic scenes, really? Yeah. But the whole... But yet the, the whole, whole feel of that film. You yeah, need a shower after watching it. Absolutely, yes. Which is effective filmmaking. 
Oh, it is. No question about that. It's just it's just not a movie I wanted to revisit. Well, it's like going and watching something like, you know, Pasolini Salo. <laughs> yeah. Which is almost impossible to watch. Yeah. And Have you actually watched that movie? Yeah, I own it, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, stronger I, man than I am. Well, I first saw it, because it was banned for so many years. Yeah. I saw it at a Pasolini retrospective in Toronto at the film festival. Where they were running all of his films. And it was the first time it was shown in the country. And I saw it there, and I described that film to people as it's time release because it disturbs you when you're watching it and then a few days later while you're trying to sleep it hits you again and you can't sleep or escape the film it's that powerful and it's that disturbing and I do not recommend people watch it I own a copy of it because I bought a Pasolini box set that I wanted some of the other films in that was part of it I don't think I've rewatched it on on Blu-ray since I've had it However, there is a disc of bonus features which show the cast and crew on set pre and post shooting having parties and laughing and joking and living like a family. Yeah. And it says Pasolini made it such a friendly set and everybody was having such a good time. Otherwise, you would have gone mad making that film. (laughs) I mean, he was killed for it. He was murdered for it. But That's right. And that's not a horror film, but it's more horrific than any horror film I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, movies like Deliverance, I think that's not a horror film either, but it, it's absolutely horrifying. Yeah, um, there's a lot of movies like that that I don't know how you classify them exactly, but they're not what I would call horror films. No, and 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 like I'd mentioned earlier, the uh, the quote unquote torture porn uh, trend that took over. Most of it, I you can watch it and tell that it was done for shock value for the most part. Yeah. When a film is shocking because it's trying to make a point, that's one thing. When it's just, I'm going to see how far I can push it, eh, it, that doesn't do it for me. I don't, I'm not against it. If that's what you like, fine. I don't want to watch The Human Centipede again. <laughs> oh, no, me neither. First off, yeah. it makes me hungry. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Not make me hungry, people. Um, what? What do you want to see coming up? I mean, what do you want to see the trend? Do you want it? Do you want horror to be respected and played in theaters again, and get wide releases and distribution, or do you want to see something like a Shutter Network? where these great young filmmakers can stream their films there to the audience that it's intended for. What what, what do you think is better for the genre as a whole? Well, I think there's room for both. I mean, uh, you know, as far as mainstream horror goes, I'd still like to see Guillermo del Toro tackle at the Mountains of Madness, uh, especially if he can make it without Tom Cruise, (laughs) which, which apparently he's going to do now or wants to do. Um... So there's that. Uh, there's you know big screen horror and, and probably small screen horror uh, for the younger filmmakers and the ones who are working with lower budgets. That's perfect. I mean you know now that we have all these choices, I I, I don't see why we can't have both. The internet 
you know, we've had internet horror series that were just online. I mean, <laughs> it's endless, people. We could do this. Well, apparently Archive 81 is based on a podcast, which I've never seen. Um, so, yeah, there's all kinds of ways you can do it these days. As an expert who's called in to, to do DVD commentaries, to do um, lectures, to be on shows like this, you know, do you think that there's a resurgence a constant resurgence in things like Hammer Films or Universal Films? Or do you think you're selling the, the commentaries on DVDs you're doing to the same people who bought it when it was released on VHS and when it was released on Beta? and when it was, Or do you think it's a growing audience? Do you think new generations are latching on to the older horror? Um, yeah, I, think I think they are to a certain extent. extent. I mean, there, there, there are some people who, who as you say, you know, would never watch a Universal Horror movie because they would find it boring. Younger, younger folks. And, and there are some, some younger people who would never watch a black and white movie, which is pretty sad. sad. On the other hand, uh, I run into a lot of younger folks who are really into things like Bella Lugosi and um, the Hammer stuff. I mean, you've got the, the new Hammer action figures out now from Mego Toys, which is pretty cool. I don't know who's buying them. Probably older people, but... You bought them. Sorry? You bought them, didn't you? Of course, of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think I think some younger people are latching on to it. I, they, you know, they they might see it online. You know, they might see an old uh, Hammer horror film or something online, or they, they might indeed pick up the Blu-ray. Um, and hopefully, they'll learn something by listening to the commentaries, and maybe they'll they'll become really interested in them. I mean, there's, I mean, there's so, so many outlets, outlets now for, for, for movies. movies. It kind of bugs, bugs me that, you know, most folks of, of a younger age have access to virtually every movie ever made nowadays at the touch of a button, but they mostly just want to watch the current mainstream movies. However, <laughs> there is a faction of younger folks, I think, that are more adventurous, and they seek out older films, and they seek out... Uh, lower-budgeted lower films that are not, are not mainstream. mainstream. So I think, so I there's, think there's, there's definitely, there's definitely hope, for hope for the future. Well, I, I like to I like to think that it's... I, my voice cracked there. I'm bragging about how my voice is better in my face and my voice cracked when I went to talk there. But <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I like to think... I, I like to think great cinema, no matter what the genre, doesn't die because... It's like great music the younger generation will eventually discover their parents' albums, and at first they're laughing at them, and they put them on to laugh at and joke about, but in a little while they're going, you know, these Beatles guys aren't so bad. <laughs> yeah. I think that happens with films. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I remember about uh, 20 years ago, my wife and I were kind of mystified by the fact that we suddenly seemed to find older music like Frank Sinatra pretty interesting. <laughs> which, which we never did before. before. So, yeah, I yeah, think when you get, when get older, after, after you've exhausted all the, you know, the current stuff, you might uh, go looking at some of the older stuff and find some real delights there. Speaking of horror and older and music, since we're both New Yorkers here, you want to know the most horrifying thing I learned today? Mm, what would that be? Today is the 50th 
50th anniversary of the first Blue Oyster Cult album. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose it would be. Well, shut up! <laughs> I wife just said, shut up. It just makes me feel so old. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, we, a few years ago, my wife and I went to see the Moody Blues. We always, always liked the Moody mm-hmm. Blues. And, uh, you know, women were throwing their underwear at the stage, but they were like old ladies throwing their depends, you know, and stuff. It was uh, one of those deals. I once threw my underwear at Tom Jones. Ooh, you did. I did. Um, I was work. I used to work concerts when I was younger, and Tom Jones was coming through to the place. And I love Tom Jones. Huge Tom Jones fan. Anyway, and I was telling all these guys on the stage crew that Tom Jones, you know, all the women will throw their underwear at him, and they're like, "What are you talking about? That's not real. That's not true." And I said, "Well, just for that, I'm going to throw mine at him tonight." Of course, I was in the orchestra <laughs> pit at the soundboard, but I chucked a pair of boxers at him. <laughs> I wonder what he thought of that. He kept him, sniffed him, you know. Oh, well. I don't know. Okay. He just he just kind of looked like, what was that? But, uh, yeah. It's, well, it, yeah. It's funny how you feel old at times. I remember when um, Disney made the film <laughs> Miracle, about the Miracle on Ice, uh, the U.S. Olympic gold medal in hockey. And the film came out. And me and my brother went to see it. Because, you know, we were kids when that happened live. We watched it, and it's like this great memory. Movie ended, and we walked out, and there were all these teenagers outside the theater going, yeah, it's a pretty good movie, but pretty far-fetched. I mean, nothing like that would really happen. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I remember uh, when people used to say James Bond movies were far-fetched. And yet, you know, 20 years ago, we had 9-11, and we had this guy this evil mastermind hiding out in a cave and uh, I always thought that it would have been great if, if James Bond could have taken him out but he never did I am glad you brought that up because I had meant to mention this much earlier in the show that now tell me if this is true or not that Ian Fleming's cousin was Christopher Lee uh Ian Fleming was, was Christopher Lee's cousin, yes. And he had wanted Christopher Lee to play Bond at first. Um, that's not the story I heard. The story I heard was that he wanted him to play Dr. No, uh, which he would have been fine. He would have been great. Yeah. I always thought, what if he would have played Bond over Connery? <laughs> well, hmm, that's a tough one, I... It certainly, it certainly would have changed, changed his career, career and uh, would, would have changed Bond a lot. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure about that one. But wouldn't that have been I, too close to his real life, though? Considering all the things that he actually did do during the Second World War, because he was part of the Secret Service. Or some, yeah, he witnessed the last guillotine in France, and when he was made. When he was made Sir Christopher Lee, he used to annoy Parliament by ringing them up and asking to be, and asking to reopen the discussion on capital punishment. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to bring he wanted to bring back hanging, and also in Lord of the Rings as well. Um, Peter Jackson was directing him and said, oh, you, um, "Imagine that you're being stabbed in the back." And he goes, "I don't need to imagine." So. <laughs> Yes, although I will say this, uh, everybody I know who worked with Christopher Lee 
said that he used to tell a lot of stories, and they weren't all necessarily true. So, put that with a grain of salt, you know? That's, come on, what do you expect from him, though? Did you ever hear him sing? Great singer. Yes, he had an amazing basso voice, yeah. He, he's such a character, though. So i got to put you on the spot again. I know you said you were much you were Cushing was your guy. Yeah. Who, who's your American? And I'm not going to let you say Vincent Price. Oh, that's who I was going to say. I know that's who you were going to say, so I'm taking him out the running. Okay. Who's your American horror icon? Which leaves off Karloff and Lugosi, if you think about it. Yes. Well, I'm very cross at you that you've taken Vincent Price as a running. You should never take Vincent Well, because that's the obvious running. answer. I want it to be a little it's different. amazing. You should never take Vincent Price out of the running of anything, Brian. If, if, if the guest wants to say Vincent Price, the guest can say Vincent Price, Brian. Yeah, but I'd have to overdub his voice with something else then, because it's too obvious an answer. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. Um, hmm. Well, you know, I, I would say something really radical here uh, and move on up the decades and say Jeffrey Combs um, Ooh. in the 80s, yeah. at least, and up, you know, up until recently. In fact, when I, when I first interviewed Jeffrey Combs, I, I told him that he his performance in Reanimator reminded me of, you know, like Cushing as Frankenstein and, you know, the great... The great old actors like Vincent Price, and uh, yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, they don't really allow people to just be horror film stars anymore. That the managers don't like it, the agents don't like it because there isn't as much money involved. But if you talk to the actors themselves, they're just fine with it. And you know, if if Jeffrey had been allowed to uh, continue in that vein, I think he could have been another Vincent Price. I do too, and he also had that ability to, there was a twinkle in his eye, even in his most menacing, that so many horror actors lack. Cushing had it. And that's, and Vincent Price had that too. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess you're right, because Robert England might be the only one that could make his entire career horror. Pretty much, in the last few years, yeah. Yeah, I, I would love to see a new horror star. But I, I haven't seen one in years. No. We have to find one. We have yes, to make we one. <laughs> we, we have to get one who doesn't have an aid yet. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. I'll, I'll apply for that. What about... Um, there are no horror stars anymore. No, no. It's so crazy to think about you of Cheney and Cheney Jr. and Karloff and Lugosi and all these people as horror movie icons and Christopher yeah. Lee and Peter Cush, even though they did a lot of stuff other than horror, you still consider them horror movie icons. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist yeah. anymore. Yeah, it just doesn't, they, they just don't market actors like that anymore, unfortunately. Well, they're really, uh, all film has changed as far as mainstream goes because there used to be a time when you would say, I'm going to see the new so-and-so film. That doesn't happen anymore. No one says I'm going to see, you know, the no the the new Bradley Cooper film. They right. they talk about the film, and you know it. It's like the stars are gone from movie stars, except in their attitudes. 
Yeah, and their and their paychecks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we need more horror and fun in the world. Comedy horror. That's the last thing. I know I'm keeping you a lot longer than I said, but I told you we would want to talk for hours. That's okay. okay. The lack of horror movie stars specifically, do you think that is because of the lack of the studio studio system where they were assigned to a studio, they had interest with a studio and they made films for that studio continuously? Well, yeah, there's some... Certainly in the early days, like Karloff and Lugosi, they had studio contracts. Actually, Lugosi really didn't. That was one of his problems. But... You know, when you get to the Hammer era, um, they weren't really contracted to Hammer or, you know, the American distributors or anybody else. They just went from film to film. And they used the same people over and over again because they worked well together. So um, e- even then, it wasn't really a, a studio system as such. I don't know. I, I think just, you know, these days, everything is geared so much towards special effects as opposed to actors that, you know, people say they want to see the new Avengers movie because of the special effects. They don't care if it's Scarlett Johansson or, you know, uh, Phyllis Diller, for that matter. I mean, they just, you know, go and see okay. the effects. I would go see the new Avengers film with Phyllis Diller in it. <laughs> if we could CGI Phyllis Diller into the Avengers, I am all over and, that. And I don't see why they couldn't do that, you know, so uh, I would probably see that, too. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, with Charo or somebody like that, yeah. That okay. See, I'm, I think a new film is being born. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think Lawrence got a point though that you know there were certain studios that were known as the horror studios. Universal Forever was the horror studio. Hammer, the horror studio. None of the studios do that anymore. Well, to some extent they do. I mean, a a twenty four sort of. Um, I mean, they've done a number of horror films, and they seem to be known as that. And then you've got uh, uh, Bloomhouse, you know, which everything they seem to do is horror. Remakes. Um, sorry? Horror remakes. <laughs> well, mostly, yeah, remakes or whatever. No, uh, to all credit to them. They, they, they're really helping bringing it back. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm iffy about some of their movies, but uh, but at least they're they're specializing in it. I, they're about the only ones I can think of right now. I mean, there's lower budget ones. There's smaller ones like um, Paper Street Pictures, um, mm-hmm. which is Aaron Koontz and um, Cameron Burns uh, that that are doing fantastic work. But of course, they're just you know their contracts are for streaming services. They're not playing theaters except film festivals. Right. right. But yeah, what about comedy horror? I don't know. I think comedy horror is is prevalent, really. Um, It seems like most horror films have some element of comedy these days. Um, And the ones that don't tend to be really, really grim. (laughs) You know, relentlessly grim. Um, The uh, the one that we're, you know, watching right now, Archive 81, doesn't doesn't really have any comedy in it that I can think of. But, you know, a lot of the self-reflective movies, like, you know, the Scream movies and so on. And the new Scream, I guess, made a lot of money uh, over yeah. the weekend. Uh, they certainly have a lot of humor. Uh, so, and, so, I think comedy horror has always been popular. And it's nothing new. Um, there yeah. was comedy in the old Universal horror films. And Corman, I mean, 
his Raven is a comedy. It's not even a horror film. I mean, oh, yeah. it's a comedy, and it's hilarious. Peter, um, you know, Peter Lorre when he's turned back into Peter Lorre, but he's still got the body of a Raven is hilarious. Well, yeah, I love that movie, and uh, and that uh, segment in Tales of Terror with uh, Lorre and Vincent Price is uh, is definitely comedy. The Black Hat segment. Yeah. See. So, yeah. Well, oh, we you know, I used to correspond with Robert Block when I was a kid. Really? Teenager. And um, he he said to me once, comedy and horror are closely linked because each one has a slightly distorted perspective of reality and each one is going toward a certain release. In, in comedy, the release is laughter. In horror, it's a scene. And so it's easy to combine the two. And he always did. I mean, he he was a master of comedy horror. It, yeah, they they just both are set out to elicit one response, and it's mm-hmm. the best way they can do it. Um, and you need the relief. You need the tension. You know, too many films, like you said, if they're just horror, you you walk out of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer feeling yeah. filthy. Yeah, there's no yeah. comic relief in there. No, and as I said, that was a movie I wanted to escape from. You know, I, I movies like that, I, I appreciate what they're doing because obviously they work. But it's not something I really want to watch over and over again. You know. No, and you know, when people do, it kind of scares me a little. <laughs> me too. Actually, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I'll watch Pumpkinhead a hundred times. So. Well, Pumpkinhead's okay. That's you know, <laughs> escapism. That's uh, that's fantasy horror to me. That's that's fine. Um, do you like the new anthology stuff that's come out? Uh, the new creep shows. The new. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. The on Shutter, they've done two or three seasons of Creep Show again. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it, it's taking on the old format, the old genre but putting a modern spin on it with a lot of younger filmmakers and -and up-and-coming filmmakers. What have you thought about that? Uh, Yeah, well, first of all, I love love anthology films, and that's why I made one. Um, Big fan of the old Amicus movies, and I was a big fan of the Creepshow movies, especially the first one. Um, I think this series is, is good. Obviously, it all depends on the story and the filmmaker. I mean, it can go either way, but I think in general it's been very good. And the great thing about it is it's a it's made for horror fans. There's so many references to other yeah. horror films, horror genres, inside jokes that you know, I'll watch them with my girlfriend who's a casual horror fan and she won't get half the references and I'm like, Oh now I gotta show you this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie. Yeah. And she yeah, appreciates it more. Are, yeah, the the references are fast and furious too. You really have to keep up with them and Yeah. Uh, that that makes it a lot of fun for us fans. Well that's what one of the um films that I absolutely fell in love with over the past couple of years and I, I always say this is the film that got me through the pandemic if I didn't discover the movie Scare Package that Aaron Koontz made I would have never survived the pandemic which okay, is an anthology comedy oh you haven't seen it? no It uh, if you have the Shutter Network it is streaming on Shutter. it's called Scare Package it's an anthology comedy I think it's seven stories seven different directors Every segment parodies a different genre of horror, 
but lovingly. It's not making fun of it. Yeah. Um, I had Aaron Kuntz on the filmmaker, and he said what we set out to do is horror with heart. All of us love the genres we were parodying. Okay. So it's tributes to all of them. Uh, Check yeah, it out. The kind you, of comedy horror I really like is, is the kind that uh, approaches it from a point of, of love. And this yeah, does. That's, that's what Young Frankenstein did, you know. Uh, Mel, you could tell that Mel Brooks was a big fan of the Universal Frankenstein movies. And well, he even got the Kenneth Strick Fadden equipment yeah. from the original Frankenstein. Yep, exactly. Now, there's one more genre. I know I said we were going to wrap it up, but one more genre I want to talk about, just because we haven't touched on it, and I don't know if you've touched on it. In the, in the books of yours that I've read, you haven't. I may have missed one. The Italian Horror. Oh, yeah. Giallo films or Italian horror films. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Italian Gothic horror films in particular, um, especially the ones in the 60s and up to the early 70s. Um, you know, they have Mario Bava, mm-hmm. one of my favorite directors. And Black Sabbath was one of the few movies I saw when I was a kid that really gave me nightmares. Um, I mean, that movie still is very scary to me. Um, so I'm a big fan of those films. Big fan of the also the Spanish horror films of the uh, of the 70s. Uh, Paul Nashi. Uh, uh, I got to give the guy credit. You know, he. I don't think any of his films is a great film, but he had such a love for the genre that it it showed through in all of his performances. And uh, I'm happy to say that I'm a Facebook friend of his son, Sergio Molina, who uh, does everything he can to keep his father's memory alive. So, um, I don't think a lot of people appreciate the artistry it takes to make a good horror film or suspense film. Yeah. That even a great filmmaker doesn't mean they can necessarily do it. Um, Arguably one of the greatest filmmakers to ever live at any point in time, Igmar Bergman, tried it at least three times. Mm-hmm. And I would not say any of those three films are among his best. Um, yeah. Hour of the Wolf, which is a great movie, but it just falls flat as a horror movie. Right. Uh, Serpent's Egg, which is probably the closest he came to getting it right, was kind of ruined because of what he was stuck with with casting and budget, but mm. you know, great filmmakers will try to make horror films and they fail. Yeah, yeah whenever, whenever, whenever I, I think, think of Hour of the Wolf, Wolf I, I think, think of the, the uh, Count Floyd routine where he shows Hour of the Wolf on Chili Theater, you know? Mm-hmm. Ooh, very scary kids! Ooh, ooh, very scary! And, you know, the kids are very disappointed by this film. Yeah. Because there's nothing scary going on, but, uh, yeah. No, it's true, and you know, even people like uh, Francis Coppola when he did Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I think has a lot of great stuff in it, um, but a lot of stuff that I think Mario Baba had already done, and uh, other directors. I have said that before to people, that it's a almost a complete rip-off of a Mario Baba film, and people have looked at me like I had two heads. No, because of the lighting and, the, you know, a lot of the... Uh, the setups, I mean... The pacing of it is... Yeah. I mean, you know, there's... I think Baba, you know, in in movies like Kill Baby Kill, I mean, he... He did such radical stuff with the genre that, uh, 
I don't think he's ever been bettered, as far as that goes. Now, we usually end with a rapid-fire round where I ask a few quick questions, real quick. Uh But before I do that, I want to ask one special question. And you may have already answered it with Black Sabbath, but spending your life in horror and around horror and loving horror, is there any film that you would, to this day, say scares you? And I don't mean sickens you like a Henry Portrait of a Serial, but a film that gets in your psyche and actually disturbs you. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, the film that scared me the most when I was younger, and still does, is uh, Robert Wise's The Haunting. Um, because of what you don't see. And that's that's what's really scary, is what you don't see. Uh, at least it is to me. And I think, I think it, you know, that's the kind of thing that gets under your skin. Um, also, you know, I have to say there are certain things in um, Blood on Satan's Claw that are very disturbing. Yes. Uh, and and just plain creepy, but also uh, really viscerally disturbing, like the rape scene, uh, which is just nasty. Uh, and I've, I've heard some younger people say that that scene is, went too far. And that's interesting that young people will say that about a movie that's 50 years old. Yeah. So, you know, it still works, that's for sure. See, I always tell people the one film that to this day scared me the moment I saw it, to this day freaks me out when I watch it and it scares me, and yet I will watch it anytime it's on, is Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Oh, yeah. Is the yeah. one film that has always just haunted me. Well, it's pretty disturbing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's the trend that, that horror is going through now. You know, uh, along with folk horror, I think the psychological horror aspect of, of, of the film genre is really what's happening right now. Um, as opposed to, you know, splatter movies. I think horror films are going much, much deeper now to the psyche. Which I'm all in favor of. It's nothing scarier than the psyche. That's for sure. So here's the rapid fire round. Uh-oh. One, will you please promise to come back on the show again at some point, at least be part of a round table with other horror fans and experts and discuss things there. Any topic you ever want to talk about, you will be welcome to come on for. That's an easy one. Yes. Yes! See, Lauren? <laughs> Two, scarier food. English food or any street food in America? Uh, <laughs> Whoa, that's an insult <laughs> waiting to happen there, Brian. Me and you are going to have words about that. <laughs> you know, I guess horrible, I'm terrible, man. I guess I'm weird because I actually like English food, but... <gasps> Yay! <laughs> but, um, we, I'm, I'm not just saying that either. I can't there is think no English food. We just like everybody else off. Yeah, I mean, as my wife says, I'll eat a stick, so there really isn't much to discuss me. Okay, well, next time you're in London, get a hot dog. I won't eat a raw fish. Next time you're in London, get a hot dog. You'll be afraid of food from now on. Well, okay. Lies. Terrible lies. Three, in the world of all these remakes, 
Whereas I've always said, why do people remake the good films? What they should do is take the films that were just poorly made but had great ideas and remake those to make them good. What is the yeah. film you would like to see remade? Uh, gosh. Um, well, you could always remake Plan 9 from Outer Space and try and make it make sense. You can't make it any better than it is. Oh, no, that film is magic. <laughs> See, Actually, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind seeing a remake of uh, something like Attack of the Puppet People, because that actually had some good ideas in it. And I was thinking a film that you mentioned very early in the show, one of the great early Hammer films, um, The Abominable Snowman. Well, yeah, actually, they have talked about remaking that uh, at Hammer, giving uh, that a re- big budget remake. Yeah, I the, can see that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Next question. Pluto, is it a planet or no? <laughs> I think it's a planet. It's also a cartoon dog. But it is a planet. See, Lauren? Yes. I think so. <laughs> and I think they're reinstating it. Lauren hates when I ask are that. Are you it as a planet now? <laughs> Lauren so hates that I ask Pluto. <laughs> um, and three, uh, the lat th- three, two, one. We're almost done. Have you ever seen a movie, a horror film in particular, where the music killed it? Where it could have been a good film if not for a bad score? Because hmm. music really does make a film in horror. Well, it can, yes. Um, let me think about that one. Because I know it's had to have happened. Hmm, that's a tough one. Oh well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'll tell you a movie that cracks me up because the music is so bad, or at least some of it is. Uh, have you ever seen uh, the Living Corpse, the Pakistani movie? No. Well, it's essentially a remake of Horror Dracula, but done with a very, very low budget, and in modern dress. But it opens up uh, with Jonathan Harker going to the castle, he's driving a Volkswagen, first of all. But the music, get this now, is La Cucaracha. So... I think you just made a new fan of that film because I have to find this, and I think that is wonderful because absurdity <laughs> is fantastic. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And the rest of the the rest of the score, they kind of mess up James Bernard's score from Horror of Dracula. They they throw it in there with no regard for copyright, but they kind of distort it somehow, so it's not even as good. So I don't know. It's it's yeah, it's a must see. I would say. Next question. If you could travel in time, would you rather go to see an early stage presentation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or, or, or Dracula, or would you rather be in the audience for the first time the Universal films were shown on a big screen? I think the latter, yes. I'd, I'd like to be in that audience. Um, I've seen a couple of the Universal movies on a big screen, but... I would have loved to have been there when they were first shown and people were screaming and yelling and they had ambulances outside the theater and uh, a nurse walking up and down the aisle. Yeah, I, that would have been fun. Oh, I, I always say I would just... To be in the audience the moment that the Frankenstein makeup was shown for the first time 
to hear the audible gasp of an audience. Yeah. I mean, that would just yes, be yes, magical. Yes. And the last question, outside of horror, do you have a particular genre of film that you, 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 you're geared towards? Do you like um, biopics, or do you like comedy, or do you like uh, every, the 500 Fast and the Furious movies? <laughs> uh, well... I'm a big fan of Spaghetti Westerns and Sergio Leone and all those things. Um, and, a, and a huge fan of comedy, uh, if it's absurd comedy like Monty Python or uh, yeah, Mel Brooks or any of those things. So, yeah, I, I think I have fairly eclectic tastes. And the last, last, last question. Plug away. Give us some plugs. Give us like uh, uh, DVDs to buy, books to buy, where to buy them, website information. What what commentary tracks you got coming up? Just sell everything you can right now. Come on, let's go. Well, uh, the Hammer Thriller is coming out in the UK uh, over the summer, I think. Uh, that's from Hemlock Books. You can go to their website or you can go on Amazon to get that. Um, I'm on the comment. I do commentaries for um, some more Hammer films coming out on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. Uh, the first one uh, I'm I can announce is uh, I'm doing the commentary for Paranoic, which is coming out I think in February. Uh, talk about Oliver Reed. That's yeah, love that movie. <laughs> yeah, and you know, as I said, sometime this year we hope to get Black Easter out there. Uh, which has been 28 years in the making, believe it or not. So, yeah, those those are the three things I'd like to, to really plug this year. Yeah, and everybody, you got to pick up Bruce's books. you got to get his movies. you got to get his commentaries. you got to check out documentaries he's in and his, his expert analysis because, you know, we've been going for well over an hour and we haven't even scratched the surface. I mean, I could do this for like 10 hours, but I know it's very late in Wales and poor Lauren gets very mad at me when I keep her up way past her bedtime. But I'm going to say... That's gonna a lie. A li- another lie, Ryan. How rude. How, what time is it there now, Lauren? It's 10.45 p.m. See, that's like an hour and a half past my bedtime in America. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Yeah. But... You, you've already agreed to be coming back on, so don't, you know, don't, you're not, you're not going back on that, because we have it on record now, and the whole world will hear this, and no uh, it was such a pleasure meeting you, and, and I can't wait to talk more, and Lauren, before we sign off, do you have any last questions or comments, or do you want to brag about how, yeah, your British horror gets over better than our American horror? Um, I don't know if that's true, I mean, not anymore. We, we don't make films like we used to. True. You know, you know yeah. I'm, I'm still hoping that there will be some. So, um, no, I, I really enjoyed the chat and everything. And cause, well, I'm more of a gothic horror person than a horror person in general. So it's been great to talk about, to listen about Hammer and everything. So I've really enjoyed Thanks. Me too. You get a good sleep, Laura. Yes. Thank you. So, from... Two guys with beards in the greatest state in the greatest country, Brian Buffalo and Bruce, also in New York, USA, and with us as always. It's Lauren from Swansea, and Wales is the best country in the world. Thank Be- you very much, Brian. Because of Tom Jones. Yes, and Dylan Thomas. <laughs> and Dylan Thomas. Good night. Good night. Good night.
he was a he was a right king. You know, he did what a king should do. He didn't have fifty million wives or 